pleasure of talking with Dr. Denise James today and so could you tell us a little bit about your journey um, to where you are now where you're from where'd you go to school all of that so I grew up in Richmond Virginia and so I went to Spelman and while there I thought I was going to be a lawyer and I took philosophy classes in part because I heard it was going to help me do it on the LSAT. Didn't take long though for one of my professors to convince me that what I really liked was the ideas and not the practice of law and he convinced me to take it seriously so I became a philosophy major so I was going to be a lawyer. Then I decided I was going to go to grad school. I was going to go get a PhD in philosophy to end up with the career that I have to be a uh, writer and professor. Um, after Spelman, I went to Emory University, which is also in Atlanta, where I completed the master's and the PhD in uh, philosophy. The type of philosophy I do um, is best characterized in this this conversation as social and political philosophy, okay. how to think about values in relationship to our desire to live in a good society. Mm -hmm. And I do that from a black feminist perspective. And so that's the work that I do. I, I teach here at the University of Dayton. Um, I write and work on um, ideas, and mostly ideas that are centered in a tradition of, of black in general, but black feminist thought in more particular. Okay, and so how did you end up here in Dayton at the University of Ooh, Dayton. That's the thing because Doing I will work. <laughs> I will be honest. Um, I had no concept of the University of Dayton until I interviewed for this job. I had quite a few interviews, and on this the second day I was interviewing, I had my interview with UD, and there were three faculty members from here, uh, and three and two of the faculty members were women, which was amazing in my field, which does not have gender parity. Uh, there are far more men in our field than women. And so this was just a very different interview than the ones I had been on. And I, I will be completely honest, I liked those people. Those people uh, were people who talked to me as, you know, I was new in the game, but I had some expertise. They were interested in my projects, at least in the interview. And so the interview made me more interested in the university. And I had gone to some other places and there were some other places I was, was thinking about coming. But I kept thinking, you know, I might like working with those people. And so I came to the University of Dayton, to the cold. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> it's, been, it's been about How, 11 years. Yeah, I was about to say, like, so 11 years you've been here. And it's still cold. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> it's still cold. I, and yeah. I will say there are ways in which that I have acclimated to the cold. Like, so now 45 degrees, I can get out of my car and, like, walk in the store without a coat on. Yeah. When I first got here from Atlanta, yeah, it was not a thing. That's a big difference. I still don't like it. I don't like to drive in the snow. I complain all in winter. <laughs> but, no, it's still as bad as it was. I'm just as, <laughs> I just have some more tools to live through it than I okay. did when I first started. Okay. Well, we are glad to have you here. <laughs> um, we are so glad to have your expertise here at the University of Dayton as well. And so I really want to have the opportunity to take you a little in the past. So I want to know what was the moment in your journey that made you realize you were a leader? So to me, I feel like leadership is broad. And okay. so I think that speaking about, you know, your professional life and just the leadership 
you know, roles that you hold in your personal life as well, I think those, you know, go hand in hand. I'm going to tell you an <laughs> uh, unexpected but connected story. So you get okay. part of the, the memoir that I'm never going to publish. But I was in fourth grade. Uh-huh. Fourth grade. You <laughs> say with me. I was nine years old. I was in fourth grade. I think I was, you see, you're laughing at me. I, I, I think there was something about um, my persuasive powers very early on that okay. I realized I could get people to do things that I wanted them to do. Now, this sounds like it's about to be a bad story. <laughs> it sort of is. Um, but I, I think that's what made me actually attracted to this type of thing I do in philosophy. Okay. Very early on, I realized that charisma could get you really far. Yeah. And that's a type of leadership, right? So I was always willing to talk to people. I wasn't particularly anxious or shy. And people thought of that as something that inspired them to do things. And I, I was quick to have friends that, you know, rallied me to their cause. So I, I fought everybody's fights for them. Like I was going to stand up to the man, yeah. to the bully. And very early on, I was like, okay. So this clearly is some sort of capacity, skill, talent, whatever you want to call it that I have, how do I want to use that? Right. People were willing to vote for me to be like the class president or the representative and what that did to my ego in one way felt good but I also really early on recognized that there could be consequences. And so by the time I got to grad school, so this is me thinking about professional leadership roles, I had spent some time trying to not have any leadership roles because it got, you know, tiring, right, to always be the person that was going to speak up, always going to be the person that was going to come up with the idea and that was going to, you know, be the person who was fighting for this or doing that. And I did a lot of that before, you know, I was in my early 20s and went to grad school. Mm -hmm. When I got to grad school, I had said, you know, I'm not going to lead anything. And all of these things were happening around me that people were either, like some of them were just like, just crazy things. People were either just going to let it pass by or people, you know, we're going to try to do something, but we're going to take the first no as the final no. And I kept saying, well, I'm not going to get involved. I just, I'm just going to study. I'm going to put my head down and study. And that didn't work either. So I started to think about, okay, well, if you're the person who who's one of your gifts or talents is the willing, you know, the willingness to, to speak up, uh, to be a person who's going to organize people. I, I tried to work on those capacities, so I joined very, you know, very early in my grad school career. Um, I was part of some different activist organizations and groups. also learned what it meant not to always be the person who was talking and in front and how I had other talents and capacities. By the time I get, you know, I got here to the University of Dayton, it was clear to me that I was going to be a non-traditional faculty member in lots of ways. I'm a black woman who does philosophy. There are, uh, at the high estimate, maybe 50 people who've black women who've completed the PhD uh, in philosophy in the United States oh, total, wow. right? Um, so I was rare in that sense, and so people were never prepared for me to teach my classes because I'm not what people think about, you know, as a philosopher. Uh, yeah. it, it, it freaks people out. But also, when I came to the University of Dayton, and still the case, there are not lots of um, faculty of color, especially faculty of color from the United States. And uh, for all of, you know, our efforts, I think we have lots to do to retain and uh, to help uh, recruit faculty uh, from a wide variety of backgrounds. And very early on, I knew that I was not going to be someone who was going to be content 
with sort of letting things fall where they may. Now, the way I think about leadership, right? So in fourth grade, leadership was, oh, you can convince people, you can organize people to do whatever it is you feel like doing at the time. That became, okay, you have this talent, sort of what are the virtues of it? To now, I, I, I see leadership in lots of different ways, but professionally, I like to think of the type of leadership that I want, the type of leader I want to be, not necessarily that I always am, is a person who is um, problem solving, right? So a good leader helps the folks that they are trying to help um, figure out what the problem is, articulate mm -hmm. the problem, and then figure out what are the best ways, what are the ways that I can help solve those problems. Because of various issues with my personality, etc., I am often a person who is sort of pushed forward to, to say the thing, to do the thing. So not very different than it was when I was in fourth grade. But now I recognize that the things that I am sort of called to say and to do and to help people with are not always the, the things of my own understanding, making, doing, right? So it used to be about what I wanted to happen. And now I'm much more interested in how can we make whatever situation better? How can we do the thing that's gonna work for more people? Right, yeah, absolutely. And so with understanding like your own power and with understanding your leadership now, who has been the most impactful leader in your life or who has inspired you to leadership? That is so hard. Like, cause I think of like a lot of different people, like people I know personally and people I don't know personally, but ooh, that one is really hard. Really, you got me, I gotta I have to think. <laughs> so, okay, so we'll do one professional, one professionally that's just philosophy related. So I'm a philosopher. Right. My dissertation advisor, her name is uh, Cindy Willett, and she teaches at Emory University. Mm -hmm. She's super supportive. And so when I was in graduate school, there was a point when, even though I thought I had the sort of intellectual capacity, I was interested in my questions, I started to wonder whether or not this sort of life was going to be for me, right? Mm -hmm. The academy was not made for, built for, still does not support in any structural way black women. And as far as personalities, we are probably poles apart. But in that process, when I was having these doubts about whether or not I should do this, whether this was the right place, all she ever did was support me in figuring those things out. Mm -hmm. And she was really good about helping me clarify what the actual problem was. But she always, you know, showed me um, that she was willing to not just go to bed for me because I was her student and that was what she was supposed to do, but she knew what was, so she had set sort of these, these goals about being a supportive advisor, doing the right thing, not just by her students, but what was the right thing in general. And she often did that in the face of, I think, real sort of conflicts with her peers. Um, she did that for me. And so for, for me, her leadership example was, you can be a person with integrity, even in situations where other people want you not to show up that way. If I am sort of being bigger, like, you know, uh -huh. what sort of leaders, um, you know, I 
really looked up to. I have like this list, and they're often sort of black women. I have this list of lots of people. Um, one of them being, and, and I'll do a really famous person because it's really easy. One of them being Toni Morrison, right? right? And one of the things that I learned in college about Toni Morrison was not only did she write these beautiful books that sort of made me cry, but also really excited. In her professional life as a professor, one of the things she often did was speak in these very elite situations as the one, the only person, and brought all of these other people to the room with her. She was very clear that the work that she was doing was not for sort of white people to accept that black people mattered or they were really important, but rather to censor black people and in especially black women's experiences in her work wherever she went. And this is while she was an elite professor mm -hmm. at Princeton doing all these things and getting all these prizes and she could have been writing those books and never trying to bring sort of that experience into those rooms and she always did that. And so now that I'm at this point in my career where I'm less worried about, oh gosh, am I gonna you know get the next promotion or whatever, I, I, I set that as my intention all the time. Who am I bringing into spaces with me? And I get that from Toni Morrison, straight out. Absolutely. So really just practicing like that authenticity and being your, your same self in every single room and bringing those same experiences with you. And I had, for me, and so this, I think this might feel like a tangent, but it might be important. For me, I had to come to grips with that that bringing myself to the room, not just other people, myself to the room, required me not to face my past, right? So there's a way in which, in acad academics in particular, this might be different in mm -hmm. the rest of the world, that we show up and we want to be known for how smart we are. Okay. And, you know, how sort of great we are about reading and writing, and we do all these things really well, and there's this sort of cult of excellence. And we assume lots of things about the people we aren't. And one of them is about people's class status. Mm -hmm. I tell everybody, I didn't become middle class until I was four years into this job. Mm -hmm. And before that, I was a graduate student, so that's a whole other set of issues. But even before that, I was poor. The people I come from are poor and working class. I went to college because I didn't want to work in Philip, in Philip Morris's factory. Philip Morris produces uh, cigarettes. I'm from Richmond, Virginia. It was, at one point, the largest producer right. of cigarettes. Um, I, I went to school with the intention of... of lots of people in my community and family for me to live a different life mm -hmm. than the life that I led. I'm also um, a, a person who grew up without a father after I was like nine or ten because he became a crack dad. Mm -hmm. And so, and I had a very hard working mother. That's a whole other set of issues. And that's the person who I am. I'm not a person who, when I was in fourth grade, thinking about those leadership skills, while I was great in school, it had not dawned on me that I could live the life that I currently live. Mm -hmm. And I was broke in like real sort of hunger type ways at points in my life. And so when I come into rooms here, especially especially now, now that everybody knows who Dr. James is, this is not when I first got here, but when I, especially now when people know who I am, there's some sense of what they expect from me. Mm -hmm. And I like to think I present myself as a certain sort of professional. I, I have that part of, we can talk about that too, that part of my persona. Yeah. Um, one of the expectations is that my class background is like their class background. Hmm. And it wasn't. I had to go to graduate school before I traveled out of the country 
right? I had to do, and, and that was on sort of grants and a loan and other things, right? And so my understanding of what life is like is very different than some of my colleagues. And so some of my colleagues, you know, when they think about especially like social justice stuff, they study those things, right? right. I am, I'm a person who, for the vast majority of my life, not only lived in that experience, but find myself having very different ideas about even how to lead in this space. So we talk about being authentic, uh, what, what authenticity is um, because of those experiences. And I think it took me a long time to, to have that be a part of who I was. Not that it wasn't there, because I also was worried about sort of confirming stereotypes, right? Yeah. So here I am, this person uh, who comes from all of the sorts of things? I guess the thing I we don't clock, you know check off the list is we didn't live in the projects, right? You know we we lived in nicer apartments. No, we didn't, but we lived in apartments and not you know right, in, right. in the projects. But that's it. Everything else is there. All of those narratives that we have about black people is there. For, uh, they, they are they are live and active narratives in my life. Mm -hmm. And there was a time, especially early on, when it was really hard for me. And it was funny because it wasn't conscious. Like I, I, where I know part of what my my persona, what I was trying to portray at work, what I took into rooms, you know, was still you know really sort of black aware and all those things. But really was trying to disconfirm people's stereotypes because surely I didn't want them to think those things about me. And I remember being here in a space that was supposed to be a good space, and someone was like, "But you know, you know." I don't know why this came up, but someone's like, well, it's, you know, like none of us, you know, you know, has, you know, knows anybody or, you know, knows anything about like being a crack addict. And I was like, hmm, hmm. speak for yourself. But it, but it was one of those times where clearly they had set the tone for what the people in the space were like. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't me. And it wasn't me in part because surely I couldn't have those things in common with those other folks that they was talking about right. because I was at that table with them. And so I had to figure out, well, what does that mean to be that person? And what does it mean not to be that person more, right? So I, I came up. And then what does that mean in lots of different ways? Mm -hmm. And and, and that, that has been a, a conscious but difficult way of thinking about my role here mm -hmm. at the university. Yeah. And so... With that being one of the challenges, what are some of the other challenges in your leadership and in trying to express your leadership in these different rooms? So the first, the first is real easy. People don't expect it, right? Like what people, people have expectations of what black women will show up like at work and in academia, there are lots of them. And, you know, I think I fit some and I don't fit others. Um, one of one of the real challenges is I don't conform to what is I think an expectation of, of women more more generally. So I think it cuts across race and class and other things that I don't I I, I have I haven't in recent years shown up to rooms with any sort of fear that I don't belong there. I think early on, and there are lots of things in the university that are meant to make people feel like they don't belong, right? People do it on purpose. I, I don't go the, it's unconscious. People do it on purpose. I just, at some point, decided, I had been working here forever. I, I, I've paid lots of sort of service dues. Mm -hmm. I, I belong where I am. And because I show up that way, and I, and I do, and you, 
I think people would probably say is true. Um, because <laughs> yeah. I show up that way, one of the challenges is always that people read my comfort, and it's not comfort and easy comfort, but my, my desire not to sort of be cowed or not to be worried about who else is in the room as a type of anger. Interesting. Because I'm supposed to be angry, right? Like, so anything that mm. I say that is critical is thought of, oh, mm. so, or, or even things that I, I give as suggestions are often took, taken as critical because that's one of the roles they understand for black women, right? right. That, that we are supposed to be sort of hyper-emotional and critical. Mm-hmm. And there are days when I worry, not, not too long, Right. But I worry that people read even my willingness to sort of be helpful as a type of critique. And I know that's because of the way I look. It's about my gesture, my affect, my voice. And um, I've gotten to the point where when I realize that that's what's happening, I often call it out as the, you know, no, this is not me being angry. Right. That's something about you, not about me. But now, and sometimes I just don't call it out at all. But it's a cha- it's a real challenge, especially when you're trying to work with people collaboratively, collaboratively, and build something and bring your skills to the table. The other challenge is people assume they know what my skill set is, okay. and um, part of that has everything to do with being someone who's willing to embrace sort of the diverse aspects of my identity in the work that I do. Mm-hmm. And people think that the only thing that I know anything about is being black and a woman who's interested in like feminism right and the truth is I know a lot of stuff about that that's true but I'm also a person who knows a lot about other things and often I encounter people who what they want from me is sort of black women's perspective and they don't realize black women have women have perspectives on on lots of things and so that is a real challenge especially in a leadership role because people don't expect me to be the leader and when I am the leader they expect a type of leadership that they don't understand how to explain the model like they don't they don't have a good sense of it. Now, when I talk to other black people about it, especially other black women, they know people like me. Mm-hmm. But in this space, I'm, they're like, who? How? What? Right. Uh, uh, people get confounded. But I, I'm, a, I'm a, a type that is fairly common, mm-hmm. at least in the broad strokes. And so that's another challenge. People d- assuming they know what my expertise is, also assuming that I don't have expertise in things that I do. And then another real challenge to leadership. And this is, I think one that people don't talk about enough is the expectation that certain people will lead from the side and the back but not the front. Okay. And so I'm great to have on a committee, right? Mm-hmm. Because part of what that is is I'm, I'm going to be helpful and I'm going to give good ideas or some ideas, sometimes they're not great ideas, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's great. But who is supposed to be the person who gets the, to be the face of the thing, and to the talk about the light. things? And yeah. it, it's really interesting when we're making those sorts of decisions, who gets picked and who doesn't get picked and that sort of thing. And that's not saying I want to be picked more or I've never been picked. I think people's expectations of who shows up is often not me. And so, the, and it's just really interesting how that conversation is also said. People want me to be really helpful, but when we sort of pick the sort of who should lead, I, I do think sometimes that there is, even in the case of me as a person who's decided I belong where I am, um, a reticence to say that the person who should lead this or should do this is the black woman at the table. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And so additionally, how do you think that race and gender has played a role in your leadership development? So the first thing is I had the great experience of knowing some really important to me black women who took on leadership roles whether it was in a community in church or even at school right so I went to Spelman College it's a historically black college for women and I had in that setting um, encountered for the first time just because of my class background black women who had PhDs who were you know you know pro- professionals in their field in a certain way and all of those women to me were different models and one of the things that they had in common was I mean even if they were just very different people one of the things they had in common was they they put a high expectation that people would do the work that they were supposed to do right so people showed up you did your work what whatever the work was whether you were contributing at the lowest level or the highest level and so as leaders they often showed up and I'm gonna do my work And that was very different than models I saw in other people. Other people could slack. Other people could, you know, um, half do it or delegate everything. And all around there were these black women who, even if they were good managers and showing other people and telling other people what to do, always showed up. Even if they were like the ones that are not the leader types that I want to be, Mm -hmm. they always showed up. And so that was one way. So I had good models. But the other thing that happened, especially once I became a professor, right? Once I started working here and being in my wider profession, where there are very few black women, like I've already told you, there are very few. I had a picture on the wall of pretty much all of us, right? (laughs) Um, People, I think, often underestimated my ability to do the job like what they expected. I tell a story all the time about how when I was in grad school, one of my white male colleagues gave me a compliment. It was after a seminar in grad school, everybody postures, I know everything, whatever. And I guess I had known everything that day. And he said, Denise, you do philosophy like a white man. Hmm. And we friend, we were friends. Yeah. And, and, and the compliment was that I wasn't like one of those women or black folks who couldn't meet whatever the professional standard was or the way we were going to argue about things in class or whatever. Um, and so, so what was a compliment to him said everything about the strategy I had about how I was going to succeed in the profession. Along the way in my life, I've had various people say that same thing to me, right? The, the, or at least not, they don't use those words because they're usually not my friends, but they, they point out things that they would never point out to other people. And part of what they're trying to say is that I have somehow uh, mastered sort of the code of their expectations of what leadership is like, even though I'm in this body, right? So, you know, I'm articulate. I'm, you know, well prepared. You're so organized. Oh, you're so quick, right? These are not things that they say to my white male colleagues, and sometimes not even to my black male colleagues, right? These are things that are reserved as compliments, which maybe they are, that I've done the thing professionally that I'm supposed to do, but they're also race and gender, because the expectation is that I would not meet them, right? Right. The same thing goes with how people expect me to interact with them. I am a usually energetic sort of, I've said a reverend a few times, person. And I think people have these stereotypes of what black women are like. And they want me to be their friend. So 
well, this is realism for the pod. Yeah. Right? They want me to be their friend. <laughs> yeah. And at work, we can be friendly, and we might be friends, but that's usually not the mode I'm in. But because I, I, I'm willing to engage them on lots of different levels, they don't necessarily, until I have a criticism, find me initially intimidating, whatever those things, other stereotypes they have. They grew up on Disney like everybody else did, and everybody has one black friend. Mm-hmm. And so at work, what you often find is people want to put you in the role of being their one black friend. Yeah. I am a bad person to do that with at work because I'm not going to meet those expectations for you if we actually aren't friends. Mm-hmm. But that's a thing. It's a real thing. It's a real it's thing. It's not the same thing. I talk to my white women colleagues. White women colleagues often, people expect them to sort of be sort of meek and just get along and everybody to agree. And I get some of that too, but it's different though. Mm-hmm. People are really concerned with whether or not I like them. Yes. Like in deep ways. And it's, it's weird to me because I'm not concerned about whether they like me. It's not, because it doesn't even, it, it's like the wrong thing to think about sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I know that that is a part of wow. my experience. Like, it, now it, you got me thinking. Like, <laughs> about the people who want you, yeah. who, who want to know that I you like them. I found myself in that position before. And, and it's, it's weird because they're cool, but that's not something you're necessarily thinking about. Not worried and about that it. becomes a and it's race and gender. Wow. They want you to be sort of helpful and mothering sometimes, but mostly they want you to be their friend that checks their coolness, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, there's something about the black woman that can sort of co-sign for how cool you are and that you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we become this object yeah. of yeah. sort of you gotta be my friend. Which also turns this ugly head on you when they figure out or feel that you're not their friend. Another thing that I have also found is that as they're trying to build these relationships with you in the workplace, um, is that they're also wanting to use you as just their baseline for all their unconscious bias mm-hmm. and just all their stereotypes, and you're, they they want to bounce them off of you, mm-hmm. almost like. A checkpoint. You get to be the testing ground for the whether or not ground. they're racist today. Yes. Whether or not they're <laughs> sexist today. There's, we hold people to different standards. Mm-hmm. And one of them that is race and gender is that we have this expectation that black folks in particular, I'm going to be very specific, um, are supposed to help uh, other people learn things about black people. And I think for black women in academia in particular, yeah. if you're a person who is too resistant to that, you get labeled as somehow a bad black person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And quick, right? It, Very it's a quick, quick label. And it's, it's a label you can't get off of you. Mm-hmm. Once people decide that you are the person that they can't talk to about the black things, that's problematic, right? Yeah. And we know that that's problems all the way down, whether you're willing to do it or not, right? Mm-hmm. It's a thing. I do set a standard for myself of what I think is reasonable behavior. And so sometimes I got to check myself hmm. and say, yeah. have you balanced too much? Have you have you become too much of a yes, you could ask me these things mm-hmm. person to the detriment of your own sort of desires, health, yes. well-being, whatever. And so I do that. But it, but again, this these are things that happen. This is a daily negotiation. <laughs> yeah. I think just come to the realization that it is a daily negotiation Mm -hmm. is something you have to do or you're going to find yourself every day like, what is going on? Why is this a part of life? Because it's a part of life. And so I'm curious to know what is your own personal definition of black female leadership? Um, How does that resonate for you? Um, One of the things I think, you know, 
black women's leadership um, should be, could be, I like about it is one of the things I said about those women I knew in my life, sort of all of my life, and that is black women in professional situations have a legacy of integrity, mm -hmm. right? And people will tell you all sorts of things about what black women are like in the world or whatever, but I know both from personal experience, but also from being a, a person who has a good sense of history of black professional intellectual women, that integrity has always been a leadership characteristic of black women's leadership. And by that I mean, you think about people like Shirley Chisholm or Mary McLeod Bethune or you know Jeanetta Cole. When we think about these very sort of you know high-level lead black women in academia in politics. One of the things that they have always brought to the table is um, a sense not just of transparency, because I think transparency gets bandied around the wrong way, but a sense of intention, right? When I go into a meeting and we say what we're trying to figure out is X, I want us to be talking about X. I want us to be Absolutely. really focused on that. And if there is something else going on in the room that's keeping us from talking about X, my integrity says, I'm going to be the person that says, hey, hey. I get the reason why we're not talking about X is this. Can we talk about this so we can get to X? And I think first, the first and foremost is, you know, people talk about authenticity. They talk about all these things. I like the word integrity. I like saying, look, I'm going to be thoughtful and deliberate about the ways in which I'm interacting with other people. I'm going to be thoughtful and deliberate about my own views and ideas. I'm going to be open to other people's views and ideas. And in the end, I'm going to act in ways that are me acting in ways with integrity, right? So a leader always says, I'm going to do my best, right? Mm -hmm. We do our best to act out of integrity so that when you go checking behind me about what I said, what I did, you may not like what you find, right? I tell people, you can read my text messages, you might not like them, mm -hmm. but because I'm a person of integrity and I think leadership requires integrity, especially when you're a black woman, it should require integrity. When you do all of that other stuff, when you go and you talk about what I said or you meet up with other person who heard about what I did, when, if it ever comes back to me, I can say, yep, I said it and I did it. Yeah. You don't have to like it. And so for me, that is a thing that I wish more people knew about black women's leadership, that black women typically have, there's a real tradition of history of negotiating, thinking about what does it mean to be a person of integrity. In academic institutions, that's often meant that you get pushed out of the institution or that you don't get to be in the institution in ways that other people, they're, they're not easy ways to be in the institution when you're a person of integrity. And that's the first and foremost. The second thing that I think really defines black women's leadership is a commitment to do, like I said, to do the job. Um, I think lots of people want the job. Lots of people want to be called a leader. They want the perks that go along with it. I think most black women who ascend to any sort of leadership role, no matter where it is, sort of on the, the hierarchy of leadership, um, are often in those roles, not just because they wanted them and it, it looks shiny, but because they are committed to, for various reasons, doing the job well. And I think that is a really important characteristic by women's leadership, to do the work. What do you want a professional to know about mentoring or advising young women of color? I think there are two different questions, right? So to mentor someone is to take an active interest in building a relationship with them for their professional development. Mm -hmm. To advise or give advice to somebody does not require that sort of relationship 
often you shouldn't necessarily give advice to somebody who you don't have that relationship with. But sometimes, you know, people drop in or you, you are encountering people. And so I think they're different. So often when people give you advice who don't know that they're coming from a different position, they want to tell you what they did. And that can be helpful. So you take it and put it with your experience some. But that also can be detrimental because maybe they were able to do those things because of who they are, right? Identities matter in these things. Um, and so I've always said, you know, when you give advice, part of what you have to do is realize that the person that you're giving advice to may not be coming from the same position. Your experiences may be different, and you have to be willing to be open and listen to what they are saying their experiences like, right? Mentoring is tricky because I think a lot of times people mentor people because they want the people to replicate them. They want the to 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 professionalize them in a way that is representative of them, right? So mm -hmm. I get a mentee and she will, you know, go and represent me well. And that's just I think the wrong way to look at it. I had a very good professional mentor here. Um, who's retired, and she, you know, was a white woman in her 60s um, when we first met. And the thing that she, you know, told me very early on was, I want to help you, you know, thrive, do the best of the things that you want to do, um, using whatever resources I can muster to help you do that. And all she wanted out of it was that when it was my turn to be somebody's mentor, that that was going to be my approach. So we often talked about that. She was like, Look, I don't need, you know, credit. I don't need you to do the things I think you should do, right? We often sometimes disagreed about what I should do, but she was a good sounding board for those things. She was a person who told me, you know, what that might look like from other perspectives so I could go to her and sort of try things out. And she often sort of was a connector. So if there was things I didn't know about or things I didn't have access to, she put in calls. She was my advocate, you know, when I wasn't there. But ultimately, the only credit she wanted was that when it was my turn to be that way, it wasn't about me trying to replicate myself or making people do what I think they should do, but that I would be that same sort of mentor. And I think that's the right attitude no matter who you're mentoring, but I think that has to be the sort of attitude that you take on, especially if what you want to do is not just have more, say, women of color in the, the academy or whatever your profession is, mm -hmm. but you want those people to thrive and to be um, able to be impactful and to have good experiences. Mm -hmm. So what are just generally some lessons that you have learned as an African-American female leader? Um, so what advice do you have for young black women on their journey? Um, we'll do lessons. Okay. The first is, um, we already talked about integrity a bit, mm -hmm. but the first lesson is every fight I get invited to isn't a fight I have to fight today. When I was both younger, but also I think thinking differently, so not just a, a matter of youth, but when I thought differently about what I thought I was doing in my life, mm -hmm. um, I attended every fight that I got invited to. Every time someone did something, someone picked at something, someone sort of made something an issue, or I thought it was an issue, I went in every time. I mean, full throttle, it was going to change the day this person did this, this thing happened, whatever. And I realized I was taking every fight. I mean, every fight would come to my door with somebody else's problem. I wasn't helping them think about the problem. I was taking every fight on. 
And so that's the lesson that every fight is in my life, my fight, but or, or every fight doesn't have to be fought today because it will wear you out. So this is the lesson to the advice. Mm-hmm. Not only will it wear you out, like physically, immensely wear you out, it will also wear you out in the sense that it starts to cheapen the things that you really care about. Not that these other things aren't important, that they aren't important to other people, but it allows, taking every fight allows other people to set your agenda. And when you say taking every fight, can you speak to an example of a fight? So I'll, I'll, do, a, I'll do a couple. So as a professor, mm-hmm. some of the things that happen um, are students will come to me and they will have an issue often, frequently, uh, with another professor. Okay. And the reason why they come to me is because they feel comfortable talking to me about it. They think that I can help them figure it out. And the truth is, yes, I can, right? But in doing that is part of what I think of as my sort of vocation. It's part of what I'm supposed to do. But there's a difference between helping somebody figure out their own stuff and then taking up that stuff as your stuff, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes all I would have to do was tell the student, oh, you're supposed to do this first and then this next. Because mm-hmm. I knew the procedures, right? This is the access thing. Or sometimes I did have to sort of make a call or send an email. And then there's a way in which that fight was no longer my fight. But there were times when I took it up in a way that that became consuming of everything I did. Not, these are not sort of crisis situations, but everything became crisis. Another fight is something's happened on campus or someone's done something. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And everybody's talking about it. And then finally it gets to my door. And like I said, I'm the person who I'll say, hey, this thing happened, what's going to happen? And that's cool. If that's what I really want to attend to, yeah. or I think is, but I, I, I had the habit of having people enlist me to their fights, right? Mm-hmm. So we would be in meetings, and everybody would think it was crazy, except for like the person who did the thing or wasn't right, the person who did the thing. And everybody would sit there like, mum, 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 twiddling thumbs, and then suddenly I'd realize everybody would be looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> And even if it was something I thought was disagreeable, maybe it wasn't something that was a priority for me, I would now be the person who was going to speak up. And after the meeting, everybody was going to go, oh, I'm so glad you said something. But you said nothing. So I was, I was literally taking up other people's fights. Mm-hmm. And that became a thing that I didn't want. Like, one, I was always the person that was going to put in my sort of neck on the line about things. People, if they were going to back me up, often back me up outside and after the space, Mm -hmm. not in the face of power. And while I was happy to do it sometimes, I recognized my willingness to do it and not be discerning about what what fights I was taking on, how much time I was taking up, um, was other people setting my agenda for me. And I was becoming not a person who was in service to goals, ideas, things I thought were good, but I was a person who was in some ways being enlisted to be a servant for other people's desires, right? Other people's wants. I got to be the bad person. I got to, or I got to be the one that was going to speak up, you know, and it it was interesting because like I said, it's something I think I can do, but I, I was taking that on in ways that kept me from doing the things I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another uh, sort of, I think, lesson into advice is we all 
do things that we later think aren't the right thing. We all make mistakes. The hardest one to learn, lesson to learn, the hardest one to live into, but the one I think is vitally important is it is okay to own up to the fact that you have been mistaken, that you have done something wrong, that you need to redo something. Mm -hmm. And we can have this weird sense of I'm never supposed to do wrong things or I'm, I'm supposed to give you reasons, excuses to sort of get out of um, get out of owning when we have made an error or a mistake um, and that is unfair to us as humans right like humans make mistakes but it's also not helpful in your career okay. because the people who don't deal with the consequences of their mistakes who don't own up to them might get far but they get far in ways that set them up to fall really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think often we run away from our mistakes, run away from our errors, and they snowball and they get bigger and bigger and then we can't fix them. And so I think another piece of lesson to advice is when you realize that you are an error, sometimes you can fix it by yourself, sometimes you can't, but it is better, I think, to sort of admit and sometimes admitting is not to other people admit to yourself that this was an error and try to fix it than it is to sort of pretend that you need to make excuses for it okay and i'm just so glad and grateful that you were willing to sit down with me today and to talk through some of these different topics about leadership and i think that people who listen to the podcast and people who you know are interested in just knowing more about their own leadership will be able to get a lot from your story and you know be able to really do some of that self-reflection too i appreciate that so now i'll be thinking about this stuff all the time because some of the stuff is stuff that i thought about and some of it is stuff that required somebody like you to ask me <laughs> questions about it so now i'll be thinking about that like for the rest of the day